I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. The book of Hebrews, I think, is one of the most underrated, but I shouldn't even say that. I think, in a sense, every book of the Bible is underrated. Um, but definitely Hebrews is underrated even by those who love the scriptures and love the Bible. Like, everyone loves Romans. Everyone loves, you know, Philippians. But not, not enough people love the book of Hebrews. The thing about it is, Hebrews gives us like a, like a decoder ring for unlocking the Old Testament. And in our continued series of Jesus in the Old Testament, we can go to a book in the New Testament that gives us tons of types that are there in the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a survey of the book of Hebrews and using it as like our decoder ring to give us like a list of a ton of types that we find of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's it's pretty um, extensive. Hebrews is a 13 chapter book. It actually takes about 40 minutes to just read it out loud. So I obviously can't read every verse in the book of Hebrews. I'm not planning on teaching the book of Hebrews. Good luck doing that in one study. That's not going to happen. But what we're going to do is sort of just run through Hebrews, pulling out of it, just things that relate to typology. Some of this stuff I've already taught. I'm not planning on reteaching that. I'll just mention it and move forward. And that gives us the ability to kind of jam through quickly. Because we've reached a point in this series, Jesus in the Old Testament, where I can kind of like, I can just go, what have I not done yet that I should do before I finish this series? And there's only a few like things that are on my mind to get done. Because I don't plan on giving you an exhaustive everything about Jesus in the Old Testament. Rather, giving you a whole bunch of tools that you can use so that when you're reading the Bible, you're able to see through that lens. So, um, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now already we have Jesus being compared or contrasted with prophets, priests, and angels. Did you notice those three? Prophets, priests, and angels, they're all being compared to Christ, and he's better than all of them in specific ways. So prophets, they spoke for God, while Jesus, he speaks as God. So there's a a message being communicated by the prophets, where Christ, he speaks as God. The priests, um, they made sacrifices, while Jesus, he made purification for sins, and he sat down because his job was done. Hebrews will get more into him sitting down later on. So we'll just notice that that's in chapter one already. It's already in the, in the, in, in the book before we even get into the, the real teaching on it later. Um, angels, angels have some authority and they have some rank as messengers of God. They come like authoritatively telling people what to do on God's behalf. Well, Jesus, he's superior to the angels coming as God, as his own messenger. And that is really the theme in a big way of Hebrews. The typology we see in Hebrews that refers to Christ in both foreshadowing and in sort of like real clear types and sometimes just implications. Um, It's always about Jesus being better and superior. That's something that it's important to recognize as we look for types of Jesus in the Old Testament. They'll always fall short, right? They'll always fall short. These, and you you get this feeling when you look at like King David and you're like, man, David, you blew it. Yeah, you were doing so good. You blew it. And you look at like the Judges, the Book of Judges, like last week, and you blew it. You blew it. You. It's a bunch of you blew it's. It's like the middle name of every single one of the uh, judges. 
Uh, it's like Gideon, you blew it, and Jephthah, you blew it, and <laughs> Samson, you really blew it. You know, it's just that's that's kind of the theme. They keep failing, and it's like the Old Testament's creating in us a longing, a sense of a need for Jesus. Like it's playing a beautiful song, and then it just keeps messing up the ending of the song, and your brain's like, play it right, finish the song, finish it properly. That that's like the feeling we get with Jesus. It's like ah, he's the consummation, he's the ful- fulfillment of all this. So it's all. Within the context of Jesus in, in this first part of Hebrews 1, um, being the agent of creation and the sustainer of creation, he's the one by whom creation is made and he holds it together, he keeps it in existence. Um, and the, the point here that I want to say right off the front is I see Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, as legitimizing the entire adventure of typology. I see it as legitimizing it. It tells us, look, this is part of God's intended like meaning in the text. He want, and this is something I've been saying a lot, right? But he wants us to go into the Old Testament looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. As Christians who are not under the law anymore, one of the things that we can look to, to find throughout Torah and throughout the, the Pentateuch, all that, right? What we can look to find is pictures of types of Christ. It's what it tells us and communicates to us about Jesus. There's other things we find there as well, but that's one of the glorious things that we can look for. So um, I'm seeing in Hebrews a legitimizing of comparing Jesus to others who reach out to man on behalf of God, prophets, priests, angels. They all are kind of God's agents to work with people. And Jesus is the ultimate mediator between God and man. So he elevated beyond them. So chapter 1 in verses 5 through 14, we read about Jesus' superiority to angels. I'm I'm, uh, not going to read through all of this because of the time it takes to read the whole book of Hebrews, but... But in verse 5, you get relationally, Jesus, he's not just like the angels. No, no, he's the son of God. He has a higher position than angels. In verse 6, Jesus is worshipped, whereas angels don't receive worship. Jesus, though, he is worshipped. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus has a rank, and his, his not only his rank, his, his role, so to speak, but his personhood, his being, and his duty, his tasks, are all better than angels. He is not the servant, but he, is as, he comes as king and God as king and God. And so he's elevated above him in that sense. Verse 10 through 12, in nature, both as Yahweh, who created all things, and as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he is exalted after his condensation. So condensation, that's not the right word. His condescension, when he came down to earth and took on flesh, his incarnation, his, he did not condensate. That's like some kind of weird theology there. Please forgive me. Um, so Jesus comes... Um, so verses 10 through 12, you get both aspects. You get Jesus, he's Yahweh, but he also, you know, condescends, comes to human form, and then he's exalted again. So he starts as Yahweh, ends as Yahweh, he's always Yahweh. So the types, um, they're not the entire purpose of the scripture. The types, we, we, we get this idea from Hebrews. The types of Jesus are, are more important or less important than Jesus, if I could put it that way. It's not, I like to put it this way. It's not like Abraham's, you know, there and then Jesus shows up and Jesus is like Abraham or Jesus is like Moses or Jesus is like Gideon or Jephthah. It's more like Abraham's like Jesus. Moses is like Jesus. Jesus is the primary. Jesus is the anchor. He's the one who came before and comes after. He is the one who does what they couldn't do. He is the one whom God was painting with the pictures of our lives and the lives of the people in the scripture. He is the, the, the purpose and point of it all. It's the consummation. Jesus isn't an addition on the end. Rather, they all led simply to him. So that's the idea. The types are secondary. Christ is primary. 
All right, verse five, just to read this one verse, it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be uh, to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Um, I'm just going to read and plow through this since I I read it, or I I described it to you. No, actually, I'm going to skip to chapter two. I will have to do that, yeah. For the sake of Tim and time. Chapter two, verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, here's the first of several warnings in Hebrews about not missing the message. Chapter 1 gives us, here's this message. It's the ultimate message from God, coming from God himself, not just at the hands of others. And don't fail to hear it. The message ultimately is the gospel. It's saying the gospel is the ultimate message. Um, Therefore, we must pay closer attention um, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the Old Testament, here's a type that you may have missed. Uh, Did you notice it when I just read it? The Old Testament type here is the message of the law coming at the administration of angels and those who, who brought the message, right? This, this is the law. And with the law, it goes out and you hear about what you can and can't do and what are the consequences if you disobey. Every, every sin gets its fair reward under the law. But that's all stuff that happens in this life, not eternal. It's temporal consequences, the law. That's what it's focused on. The statement is, hey, if you think you got in trouble by breaking Moses' law, how much more by breaking the ultimate message of God through Jesus Christ? It is an eternal consequence. So pay, pay heed, you know, give attention to this gospel message. So I see even, even in the, the, um, the extremity of the consequences of ignoring God's message in the Old Testament law, there's a type of the extremity of the consequence of rejecting the gospel of Christ. But of course, the gospel, it's, it's a higher consequence. It's eternal. The parable of the tenants kind of gets into this. Um, in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, we can read about this. It's the parable of the tenants that Jesus tells his disciples. Keep in mind that what I've just read in Hebrews talks about how a previous message came. It came from lesser beings, and it was, it was binding upon you. This message comes, the gospel, from God himself. And how much more is it binding upon you? So Luke 20, verse 9, it says, And he began to tell, them, uh, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let, let it out to tenants, like he, he loaned it to them, so to speak, and went into another country for a, a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. So what could this be po- talking about, this parable? I mean, he's talking about Israel and he's sending them the prophets and they reject the prophets and they abuse them. And he's sending them and and, and they're rejecting him. So verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The point is, when I send my son, it elevates things, doesn't it? Well, you rejected my servants. That was bad enough. How do you treat my son? But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. We can just steal it. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders has, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's either, either I fall on Jesus broken or Jesus falls upon me in judgment and I'm crushed and destroyed. So we get that, that parallel in the parable of Jesus with Hebrews here. The elevation of the message. Now the sun has come. You think the law had consequences. Well, the gospel has greater consequences. And it really does. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we see here, there's like a type anti-type thing between Jesus here and the law. The law brought death. Jesus brought deliverance from death. The reason why the law brought death is because um, of our sin. It's not like something's wrong with the Old Testament law. A lot of people think that. Even some Christians think something's wrong with the law of the Old Testament. Something's wrong with us. It's that I don't obey. That's the problem. Boy, if you just do what God says, nothing will be wrong. <laughs> like that's... That's the easy way of life, but we, we tend to choose the hard way. Um, but this type of saying that the law that brings death and Jesus brings life, doesn't this sound almost, almost like opposites? Well, that's, sometimes that's the picture. It's the superiority of Christ. The law brings the requirements that bring us to death. Christ comes and he follows it. He embodies God's will in this world. He obeys the law, so to speak, um, to, to the T, to the very heart of it. Um, so Christ comes and he's, in a sense, related to, uh, not as a clean, perfect type, but related to the law. Then in verse 16 through 18, we get some more. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, these concepts are explained in more detail later on in Hebrews. But right now, what we have is a a comparison of Jesus and the high priest. And that's going to happen a lot in the book of Hebrews. So Jesus and the high priest. I've talked some stuff about this. You could do a whole study on and just look at all the passages of the Old Testament that deal with the high priest. That could be a whole Jesus in the Old Testament study, which I don't know if we'll do in this series, but it's for homework. It's for your, for, your, for your own edification. Um, I would recommend it. But the high priest, to give you a couple things, he's a man from among men that is there to represent those men. So the high priest is taken from the Jews to represent the Jews before God. That's his t- he's a representative figure, kind of like Abraham or uh, like uh, Adam was. Adam represented us and in his fall we all fell. So the high priest is representative. The high, high priest speaks in this sense of Christ's incarnation. He won't just show up as our deliverer. He will show up as one of us who represents us and delivers us. So we're getting like the, uh, the um, substitutionary atonement is being spoken of through this. And he made propitiation. Well, the high priest, his, one of his big jobs was to make sacrifices. I mean, he's going to be taking the blood in before the Lord to, to offer it on behalf of the people. And so Christ comes as a man among men who makes propitiation for us. He does it, of course, with his own life, not just with the life of some animal, because it's all the superiority of, of what Christ is compared to others. So chapter three, and one thing I want you to notice is how pervasive the typology is in the book of Hebrews, because it legitimizes this whole um, venture of uh, digging into typology. 
So chapter three, verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So these are ways that Moses is type, typologically related to Christ. But I've done this, right? We already did Moses in the Old Testament as a representative of Christ or a, a, a type of Christ foreshadowing of Jesus. So I'll put, um, for those watching online, which is slightly more people online than in, in person here. Um, but for those of you, um, I'll put links in the video description. You can um, catch studies I refer you to down there in the video description, but it's ways that Moses is a type of Christ. That's that particular teaching. Um, so we have Moses being given. So the high priest, Moses, the law, the angels, the prophets, they're all related to Christ now so far in Hebrews. Chapter four, we'll jump down to verse, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest... Speaking of Joshua bringing them into the land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there's two things here is that um, Jesus is the one who gives us the ultimate rest, not Joshua. But we're getting a typology of Joshua here, aren't we? A, A parallel between Jesus and Joshua. But again, the parallel is in how Joshua does something like Jesus, but it falls short. Joshua takes the people into the promised land. Moses doesn't. He dies outside. Joshua brings them into the promised land, but they didn't really have rest, did they? No. They had the promised land, but it was insufficient. It was, again, it was like that song with that note that never ends. It never, it never resolves. It's not, it's not enough. Well, Christ, he gives us rest. And of course, he uses scriptures, other texts of scripture to support this. Um, I won't get into that. I'll just focus on the typology of it. Jesus and Joshua, um, whose names happen to be the same. Uh, Joshua is Yeshua or Yehoshua. The old, old, old version is Yehoshua, right? Then the version that they were using around the time of Jesus, it was the same name. They just usually abbreviated it as Yeshua. And so interesting that it's the same name. I like that typology there, Moses Leads them up to the promised land, but can't get in. Like the law says, hey, there's the promised land. Yeah, you don't qualify. And then Joshua takes them in. And so as Jesus takes us in. But yeah, Joshua is not actually Jesus. So he, so in, in, there's ways in which it falls short to leave us with an expectation for more. Verse 14, since then, of chapter 4 here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus is, again, he's, he's, he's our, our great high priest and similar to the other high priest, but he does something better. They entered the tabernacle. Jesus enters heaven on our behalf. And think about this for a second. The tabernacle was like heaven, wasn't it? If you went, I did a study on Jesus in the tabernacle in this series. And when you go into the tabernacle, you would see these heavenly images around you like angels woven into the fabric of the inside of the tabernacle. If you were even allowed inside. Well, the priest could go inside, but not, not you and me. So they would go in, they would see it, and it was meant to be like, this is heaven. This place is supposed to feel like heaven. 
You know, as you're entering into God's presence, yet you're still barred from fully entering. Well, Jesus, he enters not into the symbol, the representation of heaven, but he enters into heaven itself. That's the idea. Christ's superior, but similar to the high priest. Then in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned, but he knows the weaknesses and the temptations and the failings of humankind. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So our confidence is great, really great. I mean, okay, let's, let's take the parallel that we were just given. Let's imagine you're the Jewish people. And we're surrounded to, in front of the tabernacle. And it's a time where, where, like it happened in Israel's history, where they go to read the law and the people of Israel realize we've been sinning against God. We didn't even know it. Like we've done wicked things. And so then they bring offerings to the priest. And they take the bowl and, and then they, they confess the sins of Israel. And they kill the animal. And then the priest, he offers it up, but then he does something specific. He takes the blood of the animal and he goes inside the tabernacle. And that blood is meant to be this offering this cleansing thing for the sins that we've committed. So he goes into the tabernacle with his blood and he sprinkles it there. But from outside the tabernacle, if you were the Jews just watching, you would just see this high priest going in on your behalf, taking in the sacrifice for your sin and coming out when the job was done. It would be a time of celebration, wouldn't it? We've been wrong. We've wronged God, but we realize it and we repent and oh, we just, we can't fix it. Just the sacrifice must be made. And then he comes out. I, I don't know. Maybe they'd cheer. Maybe they dance. I don't know if you notice this, but the Jewish people are very expressive. They're not stoic like us. <laughs> like they're like out there with, with how they feel about things. And um, anyway, I, I think that there is this elevation when you take this and you look at it with Jesus. And, you, and, we, and we say, Lord, there's Jesus going in to pay the price for my sins. There's, not, there's nothing I can do about it. But there goes my representative. And he's taking away my sin. And I'm celebrating as he, as he comes out of the grave saying, you know, it's done. It's taken care of. Like he said on the cross. To tell us die, it is finished. It is finished. The price has been paid. That's literally what that means when he said it is finished. Like they found ancient like receipts and they would stamp, you know, it is finished on them to tell us die for paid in full. That's what it meant. It meant the price has been paid. Pretty powerful stuff. So where are we? Let's see. Chapter four somewhere? <laughs> um I guess we're going into chapter 5 now. Um, okay, so chapter 5 has some more specifics about how the high priest foreshadows Jesus specifically. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest is like the go-between. In a sense, it's as though, forgive the crudeness of this image, it's just, it's just an idea to help you grab it, but the high priest like grabs man with one arm and God with the other arm and is, is serving to try to bring them together. Not like God's reluctant. I mean, he sends the priest, you know, but, but he's trying to bring us together, create a bridge between man and God. That's the, that's the goal of the high priest. They do it imperfectly in the Old Testament. Christ, he does it perfectly. He does it fully. So, um, so every high priest chosen from among men, again, there's the incarnation of Christ, just as the high priest had to be human, Jesus was going to come as a human, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And you see the whole typology of the high priest. Except Jesus, he's offering himself. He's coming, he's offering himself for us. You know, if it wasn't for the Old Testament, it would seem like Jesus was bringing a new religion. 
But because of the Old Testament scriptures, we know that Christ is coming to fulfill what God has laid out long ago. I love the space between the Testaments, right? The 400 years between Malachi and then, well, probably 1 Corinthians or whichever, whichever one was written first, actually. But between Malachi and Matthew, let's just say for ease of talk. I love that 400-year space because that 400 years guarantees who Jesus is. He comes and he's, he fulfilled. It's, it's not like someone made this up in the first century. They couldn't. It had already been written long before. And Christ comes and actually fulfills it. Then in verse 2, it says, um, He can deal, the high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. I think that this is good for those who serve others in ministry, is to not think of yourself as, um, oh gosh, I'm so godly and so perfect. I'm just above the struggles of other people. Um, I use my personal struggles in ministering to people all the time. I'd rather just be open and honest about the fact that I fail and fall short and struggle and deal with weaknesses and insecurities and all that kind of normal human stuff because it lets me minister to others in like real ways. Not like what um, uh, Carl Westerland from the school ministry used to say to to us. He goes, don't do the ivory tower preaching. You're in this distant ivory tower, un, unapproachable to the normal humans that surround you. You know, like that's, that's not the kind of thing you want. Like you want people who can be real human beings when they teach. It's good to teach with authority the, the truths of scripture. I'm not saying you don't do that. I'm just saying don't pretend that you're not even a human. In fact, some pastors, they do this so much that they can't let their congregation get to know them because it will dispel the image of the false human being that they've been presenting to everybody. And... Um, all I'm, I'm not saying let's go beat those guys up. I'm just saying that's not healthy. And it's not helpful for the pastor or his people. Um, he can't even hang out with them. Like he, That's a very lonely kind of pastor to be, isn't it? Like the ivory tower kind of preacher. Um, I guess you have some secret inner circle who get to hang out with you and then you go behind closed doors and then you become human again. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm somewhere in the Bible here. Verse 2, verse 3. Um, okay, so he can deal gently with us. Uh, he's, bes- he's been beset with weaknesses. That's the high priest. So Christ is like that too. He suffers our weaknesses. He suffers our, um, our afflictions to identify with us, have pity upon us, of course. But there's two points here. That the high priest was taken from among men. We already talked about that. And then number two is that he did not take this honor to himself. He didn't claim it. He didn't say, hey, I'm showing up as the high priest. So this is from Exodus 28, 1. I'll read it to you now. It says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. What's interesting is this is one verse in the Old Testament that says that Aaron was to be taken, quote, from among the people of Israel. Now, Hebrews is playing off that one verse to say that that relates to Jesus because Jesus came among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This means that when you're looking for typology, you can find one little connection in a verse and there can be a legitimacy to that. We're not trying to fabricate things, but that's what the scripture does. Now, some would say, well, the New Testament authors were just totally abusing the the Old Testament. Like Jews didn't read the Bible like that. The truth is that when you read literature from the first century and around this time, the Jewish writers would take way more liberties with the Bible than, than the book of Hebrews ever does. 
the, the authors of the Gospels and the New Testament, they were much more conservative in their treatment and how, how much they were willing to, like, say, get from an Old Testament passage than, say, some of the authors of their time. So that's just good to know. Okay, next it gets into Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an incredibly detailed type, really, really detailed. Um, it's mentioned in chapter 5. Uh, then chapter 6 goes on. It kind of changes subject, goes into a warning about rejecting the ultimate message, the gospel. Um, but there is some typology in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. So <clears throat> I'll come back to Melchizedek in a minute. But verse 18 through 20 of chapter 6, we come back to typology in Hebrews. And it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge um, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And I love this passage. This is like Easter eggs in movies. You know, Easter eggs like they like the, apparently in one of the Cars movies, there's like a, a a billboard or a poster for a different Disney film in the background of the do you remember which one it was. Incredibles. The Incredibles. I guess the Incredibles is like in a poster in one of the Cars movies. That's just an Easter egg. You know, you notice it or you don't notice it, but obviously it's on purpose. Obviously it was deliberately there because there's a connection between these two different things. So we get this in different films. Um, well, we have this here in a sense in the book of Hebrews. It says we fled for refuge that we might have hope in Christ. Well, the idea of fleeing for refuge is an Old Testament concept that has special importance. And it comes from something called the cities of refuge. We can read about them in Numbers 35. I'll give you a second to go there if you want. Numbers 35, verse 10. So the cities of refuge were these special uh, locations throughout Israel. There were six of them in total. And these six cities of refuge, you would flee to them if you accidentally killed somebody, accidental manslaughter, and someone was going to try and kill you, you could flee to this city of refuge and you could be safe there. Well, let's read the passage. Numbers 35, 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be, the, to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent, so accidentally, may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. There's like this delayed judgment. The manslayer here could be a family member of the person he killed going, I'm just going to get revenge. And God's like, no, 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 no. You've got to have an actual court case. You need to be law and order here. And if the guy's innocent, here's the situation. He stays innocent of intent. Um, he's swinging his axe and the, the axe head flies off and it hits someone and they died. Um, more modern days, it might be like someone's backing up and they hit somebody and they, and they die. And it was like unintentional. Maybe, maybe it was even, maybe there's some wrong there, right? Certainly the event is wrong. But, uh, but in this case, they would flee to the, uh, to the city of refuge. So they fled for refuge. And that's the reference. We fled for refuge. That's the term that we're getting in Hebrews. Numbers 35.28 says this about the guy that flees to the city of refuge. Here's how, here's how it works once he gets there. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. There could be no ransom. Like you couldn't, he couldn't give an offering to get out of the city of refuge. He'd hide there in the city of refuge, which was populated by Levites, by priests. It was a, Le a Levitical city because they had these cities that were belonged to Levi. And so he stays there and he can't leave until the high priest dies. And we have what? We have fled for refuge into Christ. 
we've, in our city of refuge and what has given us our freedom from the sins that we've committed, whether they be unintentionally or whatever. Jesus' death. Here we have this amazing, beautiful thing that if you just read the Old Testament, you might go, what is this about? But when you see it with Christ, it goes click and it makes sense. In Numbers 35, 32, it tells you a little more detail about these cities of refuge. It says, you shall accept no ransom from him who has fled to, to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Except somehow the blood of the high priest is going to make it okay. Because the blood is the life. And so when the high priest, he goes back to the back to death. He goes to, from dust to dust, so to speak. His blood somehow makes it okay. The land is cleansed and he can go free. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I think this is a picture of Christ. Um, to take it a step further, which I'm not, gonna, I'm not going there, but someone else did. I'll just read it to you what they said. This is a commentary uh, called The Commentary Critical and Explanatory on the Whole Bible. That's the name of the commentary. Um, this is what they thought about the cities of refuge because they were just analyzing the names of the cities, these six cities. So they said, <clears throat> Kadesh, this is one of the six cities. Kadesh, is, it means holy, and it implies the holiness of Jesus, our refuge. Shechem, that's a second city. It means shoulder, and we get that from Isaiah 9, 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Hebron, that is fellowship, believers are called into the fellowship of Christ. And Bezer, that is a fortress, Christ is so to all who trust in him. He is our refuge and our fortress. Ramoth, that is high, for him hath God exalted with his right hand. And Golan, that is joy, for in him all the saints are justified and shall glory or have joy. I don't know. That's like a what if. I don't know if I can validate that. I thought it was just interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you guys. Um, Okay, chapter 6, verse 19. That was just verse 18. Here's verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What language is that talking about? Behind a curtain? That's tabernacle language, right? It's talking about this tabernacle, how there was the building structure itself. You go into the first room, the holy place, then you could go into the inner place of the Holy of Holies, past the veil where the ark was, where the presence of God was, where no one was allowed to go. And so he says, we have this sure and steadfast, uh, this hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the high priest's job is to enter behind the veil once a year. Only one time a year could he go behind the veil. Nobody followed him. Did you know that? It's not like he go behind the veil and then he's like, come on guys, I made the way. Like, nope, nobody would follow him. He go behind the veil, he come back out. Next year he do it again. That's it. Nobody followed him. But Jesus leads us in because he's superior. He does more than they did. He secures our salvation and our confidence is because of him. Like I'm confident in my salvation. Not because I'm a great guy. Because of Jesus, my forerunner, who's gone ahead. He's paid the price for my sin. Like he did it all. That means it's done. Right? When, you're, when you're wondering about your sin, you need to wonder about your Savior. <laughs> you need to think about the one who forgives us. We'll get more on that later, but chapter 7 then gets into this Melchizedek-Jesus typology. And it is, you cannot 
debate this. Like Hebrews 7 is clearly saying Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Some people say he's actually a Christophany. I don't personally think that that's what the passage is saying. But I made a case for that in my video on Melchizedek and Jesus. And I'll put the link for that in the description. Um, So chapter 7, verse 27. Let's jump down because if I was to cover Melchizedek, it would be, again, it would be the whole night just on that. So he has no need, like those high priests, Jesus, he's not like the other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. This word of the oath is Psalm 110, right? God has has promised, he's made an oath, I will make you a priest forever, or you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's the oath, and it comes after the law that there's this other priesthood, and there's a whole theology there that's in chapter 7. But the point here is that Jesus, he's the once and for all sacrifice because he, he's, he's perfect. There's, there's no need to sacrifice for his own sins, and there's no need to repeat anything for the sins of others. One time, one sacrifice, that's it, job's done. There's an interesting combination here because we have the high priest as typology of Christ, but then we have a prophecy of something greater in Psalm 110, right? Melchizedek. It's, it's when you take Jesus that the entire Old Testament comes together and makes total sense. It's that it all clicks. And that's the idea of Jesus in the Old Testament as seeing what's already been embedded there, the meaning of it all. Then in chapter 8, and again, I'm just, doing, I'm just surveying to give us an idea of how pervasive typology is throughout the Old Testament, but also in the book of Hebrews, because then it, again, legitimizes this whole adventure of finding types. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. True tent, what is that talking about? Yeah, this is like the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up. This is, so the, the tabernacle itself is a shadow. It's a foreshadowing. And there's the true that comes. The more, the more real things are the things that we read about in the New Testament, actually. Um, so the previous tent is superseded by the true tent, just like the previous priests are superseded by our ultimate high priest, Jesus, the, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this should have been obvious when they looked at the tabernacle, right? Like, like these aren't angels. These are woven images on cloth. Like, we don't think that there's real. These aren't real angels. This is like gold covering, you know, wood or, or, or whatever. This isn't like, you know, this isn't the final thing, right? This is all representative. It seemed representative even at the time of its making. It was representative. Christ comes and he does, he does the real thing. But what, what we're saying, though, from the book of Hebrews is that just as the tabernacle was only representative of something greater, so the high priest was only representative of something greater, so the sacrifices were only representative of something greater. It's consistent as you go across all these things. Then in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. It's just the nature of being a priest. You have to offer something. Well, Jesus offers himself. Um, they offer things. Jesus offers something better. The, um, the, uh, what's the other term we use for it? It wasn't uh, superseding, but it was um, not elevation, but anyway, there's a word that's helpful 
for understanding these concepts. Verse four, <laughs> this verse starts to get more into this typology. Um, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus doesn't come to be just like them. They're already there. They're already doing that job. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That would be the, the tabernacle. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The, the interpretation of the Old Testament passage here in Hebrews is, it, there's, there's a pattern shown him on the mountain. A pattern of what? What's this, this pattern existed before the tabernacle existed. What is it of? That's the, kind of the question. Verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So this is like how Jesus supersedes. He's a better priest of a better tabernacle, bringing a better sacrifice with a better covenant based on better promises. Do you see the betterness? There's a word for you. The betterness of Jesus. That's kind of one of the themes of Hebrews, the betterness of Christ. I like that word now. I'm going to put that up on my wall. Betterness. 2 Corinthians 5.19 it speaks of this because think the, the priest was trying to offer sacrifices for the people of Israel and they were never enough because they had to keep being offered again and again. Second Corinthians 5.19, it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Something no Old Testament sacrifice ever did. In fact, Jesus, his sacrifice paid the price for things the Old Testament didn't even have sacrifices for. There's certain sins where you just couldn't make a sacrifice under the Old Testament law. It's like you're toast doesn't actually mean you've lost your salvation. It means under the Old Testament law that is based upon things that happen in this life for just the Israel, the Jewish people. Um, yeah, there's, there's going to be, you know, this kind of punishment for that sin. But Christ comes and he covers the sins that aren't even touched by the Old Testament law. Where am I now? All right, verse seven. <laughs> it's tough having 11 pages of notes. Um, so now we're going to talk about the covenant. Now we're going to talk about the covenant. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, the first covenant would be the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, where God gives him the Mosaic covenant, we call it. There would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the, the fact that there's a new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah is to say that something's not working with the old covenant. Uh, what was not working? Was the, was the covenant flawed? No, no, the, well, the covenant wasn't actually the flaw. It's, it, it answers that question in verse 8. He finds fault with them. It's, it's the people who fail the covenant. There needs to be a covenant that doesn't require us to be perfect. And that's what Jesus gives us. Verse 9, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31 and the timeline, right? So here's Abraham, about 2000 BC. Moses comes, maybe about uh, 1400 BC. Um, And then we have, that's with the Mosaic covenant. Then we have Jeremiah coming around, I, I think it's, the early 600s BC uh, that he's probably prophesying. And he's way after Moses and he's saying, hey, there's a new covenant coming and I'm going to make it better. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. That's my deal with you. I'll make you a new person. You'll become what? Born again. That's the idea. 
So Jeremiah 31 uh, gives us a foreshadowing of the old covenant and the new. This isn't exactly typology about covenants. This is about kind of prophecy, really, at this point. And prophecy and typology do sometimes intermingle and sometimes difficult to separate which one it is on occasion. So he found fault with them. And then, again, it's the insufficiency of the old that's noted. It's the sufficiency of the new. The old covenant is insufficient because of our failings. The new is sufficient because of Christ's accomplishments. So it's not about my failings. It, it factors in that I need a new heart and a new mind. And that's what he gives me. So, man, I love this. This is typology we've not really talked about. This whole, like, written on tablets versus written on our hearts. The Ten Commandments, laws written on, on tablets that, you're, that look in your face and you don't obey them versus God's laws, his, his law of love written right on our hearts. So there's a, a parallel there. Again, a superiority, a betterness of what comes now. In verse 11, it says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is, again, this is about the covenant, not the Old Testament as a whole. This is where I think some people make a real big misstep. They think that we're saying, oh, so rip out that first two-thirds chunk of your Bible and throw it away. It's obsolete. That's not what's being said. The covenant is no longer something that we're under the law. We're not under the law. Right? But that doesn't mean that the truths are not inspired or authoritative. They're fully inspired, fully authoritative. We just don't apply them the same way. I don't apply this as though I am a Jew living under the Israeli, like the, Jew, the law of Moses. I'm not, I'm not living under the law of Moses. But I still learn from the law of Moses. In fact, that's what Hebrews is doing, right? It's speaking about these things like they apply very much to our lives today, but just in a, in a different way because now we have a, the full revelation of God. So we apply it in a slightly different fashion. Um, this is why Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. They knew what he was talking about. There was one big new covenant they were expecting. And Jesus says, this is it. It's the covenant in my blood, not the covenant of the blood of these animals or anything like that. Powerful, powerful words. Then chapter nine, it talks about the symbolism of the tabernacle, which again, I did a whole video on as part of the series. And I'll put a link in the description for that. Verse six of chapter nine. After noting the, the holy place and the holy of holies, that inner spot where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, it says, These preparations have thus, having thus been made, chapter 9, verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual dewey, duties. This is where like the, um, the altar of incense was and the table of the showbread and the, uh, the, the candlesticks, the, um, uh, what's it called? No? Menorah? The menorah. There you go. Um, just blanking on it. Too much reading. Not enough sleeping. <laughs> That's what happens. It starts to backfire on you. Um, so all those things were there in the first section. Um, but, verse 7, into the second where the Ark of the Covenant was, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, with which, uh, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The unintentional sins. This is a sin for unintentional things or a, an atonement for unintentional sins, not all sin was dealt with in the Old Testament sacrifices. Right? Christ, he's bringing us forgiveness for our purposeful, intentional, deliberate sins. It's real forgiveness for people who desperately, desperately need it. But this, the Holy, by this, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, 
indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Because here you have, even in the temple, there's this, there's this barrier between you and God. That's the idea. Which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that can not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Why does it say that? Because though the sacrifices were offered, though the people could celebrate as the high priest came out, and they're like, oh, we're, we're, clean, we're cleansed. Wouldn't you be like, well, if I'm that clean, can I go in and see God? And you're like, oh no, you're not, you're not actually fixed. You know, like you're not, you're not, no, don't, you don't want to do that. Like you're not allowed because the way has not been made because this is all insufficient and Christ is sufficient. And that's the idea. Verse 10, but they, um, they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, meaning that these things are not imposed now. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the, me- not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Do you see the typology here? It's, it's going Old Testament type, not by the ceremonial washings, not by the blood of bulls and calves, by his own blood. It, not, not that tabernacle, no, no, into the holy place, into the actual holy place. Um, Thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Old Testament type. That, that ashes of the heifer, this is this water of cleansing they would use. It, it was actually almost like a recipe for soapy water. When you read the recipe, it's like they'd render down animal. It was interesting. And they'd use this for washing. Um, so that sanctified for what at the end of verse 13? For the purification of the flesh. It's outward. It's not inward. It's symbolic. It's important, but it's representative of something greater. How much more, Christ's superiority, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, as those sacrifices were without blemish, to God, purify our conscience inside from dead works to serve the living God. He'll change us from the inside out. He's writing his laws upon our hearts. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is things that they, those transgressions couldn't, couldn't be paid for by the first covenant, but Christ, he takes care of that stuff. So it's all about Jesus, not only in foreshadowing, but in falling short. It's important that the Old Testament stuff falls short of what Messiah eventually does so that we can see the need and see the contrast. So we can look for that in our study of the Old Testament. All right, verse 16. You guys ready? The marathon continues. It's easy for you. All you have to do is listen. (laughs) Verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now we're thinking about how it was inaugurated, how the first covenant took place. And there's a specific type in the event, in the moment, when Moses was first giving the covenant to the people. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he read them the the words of the book. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, as he's sprinkling them, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. He wasn't Catholic, but he was doing the motion. He was doing, he was doing this, right? He hissed up, he dipped this branch in, he sprinkled the people. They weren't like, 
drowning, drenched in blood. And all, some people, they get crass when they describe this event, I think. I've heard pastors do that. Um, they were sprinkled, okay? It was, and it was with, um, with the, the, the blood and the water and all that stuff combined. And they're sprinkled. Why is he sprinkling all the people? The idea is they're just all being covered by this covenant that is secured by blood. The blood guarantees that you are now under this covenant. Right? You better obey the law of Moses because you're under this covenant. That's the idea. And blood was involved for a very good purpose here. Verse 21, and in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's the point. All that blood stuff is to tell you without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So it could just drive you into recognizing right away what Christ does on the cross. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the earthly tabernacle, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So just as Moses sprinkled everything with that blood, so Jesus, he is, we are being sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And through him, I'm in the new covenant, which is one of the forgiveness of all my sins, and where God transforms me from the inside out and writes his character into my own life. And it's, um, it's amazing. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world if there was some repeated sacrifice. This brings up some concerns about the, the Catholic version of the mass um, where they say, some say they're re-sacrificing Jesus in the ritual of the mass. But the term that I've heard Catholics like to use is representing the sacrifice. Like they're presenting the sacrifice of Jesus again, as though it needs to be presented again. I think that kind of goes against this text here because it says, uh, but as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he was offered once. He's not re-offered and re-offered and re-offered will appear a second time not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The idea is that the, the offering of Jesus doesn't need to happen again. It's not necessary. He did it once, end of story. Next time he comes back for something very different. But the Catholic teaching is that he's actually invoking the body and blood of Christ. One day I'll do a teaching on the, on the Eucharist. We'll just look at the passages and maybe some church history on it and stuff like that because I think it's interesting stuff and um, important, important. So comparing... What the high priest did to what Jesus did, what Jesus did is, is so much more amazing and more wonderful and more real than what they did. And you find out what they did was just, it was just like the analogy I gave at the Karate Kid, my terrible Karate Kid analogy, right? That was painting the fence. That was waxing the car. That was sweeping, mopping. It was waxing, painting. There was another one though, wasn't it? Just wax on and wax off? That was it? Painting the fence? I saw this so many years ago. I don't really... I'm not actually a big fan. It's just, oh, yeah. I paint everything like that now. Sand the floor. That was it. All right. I'm glad we cleared that up. So it's like that. You know, sanding the floor is kind of this mundane thing that just prepares him for, you know, fighting Johnny or whatever. So you do what you like with that analogy. <laughs> I think it helps. Um, chapter 10. Chapter 10. Let's finish the book of Hebrews tonight. 
we will do this. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Remember, they they can't enter the holy. You're not not actually going to be able to come in God's presence. There's something else going on here. It's representative of something better. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So the law meant to bring out your needs. Jesus means to meet those needs. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, and and by the way, this kind of makes sense though, right? Like how exactly does this bull or goat fix my sin issue? Like I get that I'm offering something. I feel like I should offer something for my sin, but how does this do it? Christ does it. He comes as a man representative of all of us. And he is fully God, or as you say, truly God, truly man. And then he dies on the cross for our sin. This actually accomplishes our salvation. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is now quoting the Old Testament. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is an amazing passage from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He says, hey, these sacrifices, they're not going to please you ultimately. So I've come in a body, right? Because Jesus is a human, will represent all of us, not like a bull or a goat. He says that the the offerings and all that, that that wasn't going to do the job, but he's coming and that it's written of him. All this stuff is written about him in the book. And that's what we're reading about in the Old Testament. I I think it's so neat when you study the typology of the Old Testament, because I deal, you guys know, I deal a lot with skeptics or non-believers and stuff like that. But when they look at the real details of this stuff, like in-depth details, you realize this stuff's been prophesied and written of in detail. What happens is they often hear one example of prophecy that tends to be very vague or something like that. And then they don't realize how deep it is, like how robust all this stuff really is. It's exciting. Verse eight, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. We're not getting rid of the Old Testament as though it's not inspired and authoritative. No, no, he's getting rid of the sacrifices under the covenant in order to replace them with his own sacrifice. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... By the will he's come to do, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Boom. I'm considering, maybe, maybe next week, doing a study in Leviticus of typology as uh, we round out our study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Because I was thinking, what's something that people with all the tools I've hopefully given you, you might still struggle with, how does this represent Christ? And I thought, Leviticus. So I'm thinking we might dig into that. Um, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So again, we have the comparison old and new old is continual, constant sacrifices. And it's symbolizing the job's not done by the priest being standing the whole time. He's never, he's never done. He doesn't get a sit. Jesus, he offers a sacrifice and he's sat down at the right hand of God It's all finished. It's all done. There's no more sacrifice. 
Verse 14 supports this. It says, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, I feel like I'm still in my process of sanctification. Am I really forgiven? He's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Okay, so positionally, I'm, I'm, I'm secure. Conditionally, I'm in process, becoming more like Christ. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, now we're speaking of our the real holy places, by our ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, um, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So the curtain is described as the flesh of Jesus that was torn open. And what happened when Christ died? There was an earthquake and the tabernacle. Uh, the curtain in the tabernacle was torn open. The, the temple, sorry, it was torn open. And then the way was made. Like there's nothing keeping you from the Holy of Holies anymore. Right? Because Jesus has paved the way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He meant actually comes to the Father. I'm actually going to come to the Father. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, so Jesus is our priest. So far in verses 19, 20, and 21, Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the tabernacle, and he is our great priest. In three verses, we have those three types. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we have a New Testament reality based upon the washing of and the sprinkling that we read about in the in like Leviticus and in Exodus. Okay, chapter 11, totally can't do that today, right? Chapter 11 is the hall of faith, and I think it's a hall of typology. I actually made a list of all of the guys that are in there, and then I did not print it because that's the kind of person I am. Sorry, but there's a, there's a list. I have a whole video on it, but there's a list where we can, we can talk about Abraham and Sarah and, and Barak and Jephthah and Gideon and Samson. And we can talk about all these people and every single one of them, I think, is in some way related to typology and foreshadowing of Christ. And it was really exciting because I didn't know that going in. I just started studying chapter 11 thinking maybe it's there and, and it seems like it is. Pretty cool stuff. In fact, hopefully what you're seeing is Hebrews all about typology. It's not the only thing the book's about. There's lots it teaches I'm not covering, but definitely that. Okay, chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, keep that phrase in mind, cloud of witnesses. I used to wonder what, when I was a kid, I was like, what does that mean? Cloud of witnesses. What is, are they watching me? Are they watching me? Um, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily or so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can I just remind us for a second? Our calling is not just to have proper theology. Our calling is to set our eyes upon Christ and run our lives with endurance, like looking to him and our ultimate reward, and that this life is just the passing temporary thing. Um, and just to point our lives to Christ and to have that real attitude. You know what I'm talking about, that attitude that Christ is calling us to have. Uh, But as far as that cloud of witnesses, they're not watching us. They're telling us something. Like when a witness goes into court and they get on the stand and they share their eyewitness testimony, all these witnesses of chapter 11 are telling us something about Jesus and who Jesus is and typology of Christ, along with living lives of faith and trusting in God. So, cool stuff. So they're witnesses, and we will fix our eyes on Jesus. It's like they're even pointing us towards him. 
All right, verse 18 of chapter 12. For you've not come to what may be touched. What, um, yeah, that's right. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast... Uh, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is now we're going to get to analogy of two mountains in Hebrews chapter 12. And one is Mount Sinai and one is Jerusalem. And Mount Sinai is meant to be contrasted with Jerusalem. But not just any Jerusalem. No, no, no. What Jerusalem meant to be along. What it represented of the atonement and the sacrifice and the meeting between God and man. So Mount Sinai is where the law was given and it was doom and gloom and it was a scary moment. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. Um, Why was it scary? Because God is holy and man is not and they're trying to be brought together. Here you have man living in rebellion against God. God going, I will come and be with you. And here they are worshiping idols already, like three seconds after leaving Egypt. You know, I mean, just the sin of man right there. And God's like, I want to be near you, but if you come any closer, I will kill you. I mean, this, it's... It's, it's like a problem. It's a problem. And um, Jesus, he's like coming to a different mountain. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. We've not, went, we've not gone to Mount Sinai there. We've gone to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now this is typology where Jerusalem itself is meant to be a foreshadowing or a type of what heaven is going to be like. That's why in Revelation, it's, a, it's the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. This is meant to be a picture. Um, So we've come to an innumerable uh, company of angels in festal gathering. That word festal gathering is talking about feast days of Israel. So it's about feast days. Um, It's interesting to do a study on how the feasts represent Christ and the different phases of his ministry. Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So those who are alive and those who who are gone before, who um, they aren't perfect, they are made perfect. You like that? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkling, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Tons of typology in there. Um, that's there for you to discover. But Mount Zion, um, if you'll recall, everything you've heard so far, Mount Zion is the location, uh, well, there's a true tabernacle. Well, we're going to talk about the true place of the tabernacle, which isn't Jerusalem, but it's ultimately heaven being pictured as Mount Zion. The place of the true, true tabernacle and where Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. The Old Testament obsession with Jerusalem suddenly makes more sense. The constant, these Psalms crying out about Zion and how glorious it is to just go there. And this journey to Zion that we actually have Psalms that are written would be sung on their way to Jerusalem for the feasts. What they're picturing is us in our eternal home with God, with Christ, with the, those who've gone before us made perfect, right? We're, we're talking about the final consummation of all things when God recreates all heaven meets earth. And here we are with God forever. So, Tons of typology, tons of typology across the board 
from the city of Jerusalem to the tabernacle, to the priests, to the sacrifices themselves, to the instruments that are in the temple, to the veil that's part of the tabernacle itself, to the behaviors of, of, of how, um, if, oh, we'll get there in a second in chapter 13, the behaviors of certain elements of certain sacrifices on certain days relate to Jesus. It's the specificity of it that, that really enamors me. So Hebrews 13, verse 10, it says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Um, there's a good chance that those who serve the tent here are the worshipers who would come and bring offerings to the, um, the tabernacle or to uh, the, uh, the temple. And they have no right to eat. In other words, there's some sacrifices in Leviticus that they're not allowed to eat. It's fully burnt. It's fully destroyed. They can't partake of it. They can't eat those things. And it's saying, hey, we have an altar from which you guys aren't allowed to eat. There's this, this, this thing that you can't get through the Old Testament law. None of those sacrifices will do for you what Jesus does for you at the cross. But we partake of Christ's sacrifice, which is it's of a different priesthood. It's a better priesthood. Another way to put this is that um, we're all priests, the scripture says now. Under our high priest, we're all priests. We're partaking of this, this thing because the priest could partake sometimes of sacrifices no one else could. So it could be referring to how the worshipers couldn't eat certain things the priests could. There might be a parallel that's there, and now we're entering in. Um, verse 11 of chapter 13, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. In Leviticus, there's a, 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 a sin offering. When you bring a sin offering in particular, you take the body of the animal and you burn it outside the camp. That's one of the rules. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is saying there's a parallel between the specific details of specific sacrifices and what Jesus did in his, uh, in his sacrifice for us. And the detail is the body's carried outside the camp and Jesus was carried outside the gate of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? This legitimizes the idea of going into Leviticus and looking for these types of things. Um, and that's my goal is to inspire you in your own studies, not just to teach you everything about this because I couldn't anyways. Chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And that reproach is the reproach of the cross. So we're like to follow along. We go outside the camp rejected or despised, or even if you are hated for Christ, don't revile back. Bless those who curse you. Pray for them. Seek for ways to, to bless them. Um, follow Christ in those things. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that's the driving thing of, um, of Hebrews, I think, in the typology. If we can say, I'll put it this way. All the Old Testament speaks of these types and symbols and shadows that represent the ultimate glorious thing. That was important that they did it so they could point to the ultimate thing. In the same sense, your life right now is living in a foreshadowing time. And everything I do now is about pointing towards the ultimate thing, that coming reality of heaven. It's not about getting my bucket list. It's not about living my life for me. It's about doing everything now to point people towards Christ because we seek the lasting city. We seek the eternal things. We store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Just as they long for Jerusalem, right? Next year in Jerusalem. So we long for the new Jerusalem. And I say, I live for that. I live, you know, blessed is the man who sets his heart on pilgrimage. The Psalms say, I'm going to bless, I'm going to put my heart on pilgrimage. I'm, I'm pilgrimaging towards what? That real Jerusalem, that true Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven that we read about in Revelation. So um, I had made a list, but because I thought it would be really helpful at the very end to just run through all the things that were typological related to Christ that we just get from the book of Hebrews. 
But again, I did not print my list because I'm kind of a dummy. Um, but to just run a few off the top of my head, right? And you can help me with this, right? Christ is pictured in the tabernacle itself, according to this book. The details of the tabernacle, like the veil being torn, being his flesh. The sacrifices are picturing Christ. The details about certain sacrifices, like the sin offering being brought outside the camp, that symbolizes Christ brought outside the camp. The priest, the high priest himself being chosen among men, one little line in the middle of Exodus, that's representative of Christ being chosen from among man. Um, the, uh, the activity of the high priest going to God on behalf of the people, Jesus does this, but he does it better. He, he trumps it. He, he fulfills it. They constantly fall short. Then we have like things in Hebrews 11 about the individuals of like Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Deborah and Barak. And we have, you go through the list of the names, you have tons of types of Christ. Jerusalem itself is typological to something that relates to Christ. All these things, did I miss something? I'm, no, I probably missed about 12 things. Um, the point here is this. Hebrews legitimizes looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's something that in my, in my opinion, we have forgotten about. That in a lot of our churches, we're just not really doing this very much. And I would encourage students of the word to be reading the Old Testament, looking for typology of Christ, only holding on to those types as, as strongly as the text justifies, right? But looking for those things, knowing how pervasive it is throughout the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we want to know your word better, um, but part of that is knowing that while the Bible is many books, in a sense, it's one book. It's one giant revelation of God. And there are these, this, this, there's this literary brilliance through the text of scripture that we want to grasp. And we want to understand it. We want to see it so we can just have our hearts delight in Jesus. Like on the road to Emmaus, when their hearts burn within them as, as you open the scriptures to them, Lord, that's what we want. And so we pray for it. We pray in the light of Christ. We would have a fresh understanding deeper meaning that we find in the scriptures of the Old Testament and that it would just be a glorious, glorious adventure and that you'd reveal yourself to us more, that we would know you more, appreciate you more, and, um, and just delight in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.